0: You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday Sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. Today's passage comes from Matthew chapter 17, verses 22 to 27. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of man, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you you think, Simon? from whom the kings of the earth take toll or tax, from their sons or from others. And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. This is the word of the Lord for our church and it is given for our good thanks be to God
1: thank you Anna Uh, would you turn with me to the Lord in a word of prayer our father we open up your word together this morning as as children called by you and we ask that you would take these words And help us to understand something more of who you are and who we are and our life in Christ we ask that you would draw near to us through this word through this story Um, father we confess our great need for you I ask that you would help us to be receptive to your word this morning that we would be a people who who want to hear to receive to know to understand who desire your spirit's work of transformation in our lives. And we invite you to do that work by the power of your spirit. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it was 15, uh, 1517, the year 1517, which should be a, a familiar date to some of you here, the year that uh, the great monk, uh, professor of Wittenberg, Martin Luther, uh, famously posted his 95 theses at the church door in Wittenberg, uh, in Germany. And this was, of course, just a way of of, uh, posting mail. He he nailed these theses to the door in order to start a great theological debate, or probably in his mind, just just a, uh, a local theological debate. And these were to address matters of what he saw as abuses that had crept into the life of the church, well, over a long period of time, uh, and he wanted to address these things now he wanted to address these things within the context we need to understand of the one holy catholic and apostolic church right? there was no Roman Catholic Church and Protestant Church at this time uh, there was one church at least in the West uh, and for all those concerned in the West and here is Luther uh, who loves the church who's committed to the church uh, who wants to see the church flourish and so he brings these concerns to the church. Okay, there had been questionable periods of taxation within the church okay, in order to build great buildings and in order for you know, the pope and the re- religious establishment to, um, to be able to run and have what they needed and perhaps a little more. The church had demanded payment, a kind of payment in, uh, in return for, uh, for forgiveness. Okay, uh, through the selling of indulgences. And Luther came to respond to these requests for payment and these various abuses in the life of the church. He came to respond to these things by calling these, qu- these practices into question. How is the Christian supposed to respond to imposed authorities, to an imposed tax, perhaps, or imposed set of payments, even from the church? When an institution you're part of The church, or otherwise, asks that you pay a tax, or maybe a tithe, or makes some demand of you that you believe is not your obligation to give and to respond to, how do you respond? What is your obligation? Do you say, well, I'm free? God doesn't say it anywhere in the scriptures, you're asking this of me, but I'm free, leave me alone. Uh, Or do you say, fine, I'll pay the tax, or I'll, I'll, I'll do what you're asking me to do, leave me alone? You know, get off my back. Uh, When an institution that you're a part of makes these demands of you, how will you respond? How do we respond to authorities more broadly? Obviously, these questions of Christian responsibility and obligations to authority have loomed large these last number of years, concerning things like vaccinations and lockdowns. Uh, concerning areas of medical practice and conscience Um, these are challenging questions in the life of the church in terms of how we as Christians respond to various authorities in our lives and Luther was engaging some of these same questions In, in response to such questions of of church authority Luther then in his own context writes a treatise in response entitled on the freedom of a Christian And actually, this was written in 1520, the same year that Luther himself was excommunicated from the church. And in this treatise, Luther sets forth two major theses. Two theses that may at first appear to be contradictory. First, he he writes, a Christian is a perfectly free lord of all, subject to none. This is what a Christian is. This is who a Christian is. A perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. But secondly, secondly, he writes, the second thesis that he develops, a Christian is also a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. On the one hand, the Christian is perfectly free, the Lord of all, subject to none. Of course, this is a theological claim that the Christian's um, authority is Christ himself, the king of the whole earth, to whom every other authority is subject. Right? And as those who are bound together with Christ as our Lord and king, subject to him, every other authority is relativized. Okay, we're given this, this uh, newfound freedom in Christ with respect to other authorities. And of course, for Luther and in his context, these are, these are fighting words. Right, that the Christian is free from all, Lord of all, subject to none. Right, um, would he submit to the churchly authorities? And here he's saying the Christian is perfectly free. And yet, at the same time, making the second affirmation that a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. That the Christian's freedom binds him or her to the love of God and to the love of neighbor in a way that demands Christian subjection. Uh, Another way that Luther famously put this is something like, love God and do what you want. Um, When your master is the, the Lord and King, you love him with all that you have, your subjection is to him, and at the same time we're given this freedom with respect to the world, which is also a freedom that calls us to subjection. And our passage this morning engages these theses, these two theses, in its own way. But I'll argue in a way that's narrowed down to particular matters of religious authority and temple religion. I'll explain more. Okay, the, the question that's opened up before us in the passage is put to Jesus: How will Jesus respond to the temple's request for taxes? Okay, and we want to engage this question: How will Jesus respond to the temple's request for taxes? And then, of course. How should we respond in light of this? So in order to engage these questions again, we might rephrase Luther's two theses accordingly in a narrower respect. First, we are perfectly free from subjection to temple religion. The Christian is perfectly free from subjection to what I'm calling temple religion. And secondly, we are perfectly dutiful for the sake of the kingdom. We're free from temple religion on the one hand and perfectly dutiful for the sake of the kingdom on the other. Now, I'll just say, if this is your first time at our church, uh, welcome. If you're new to the Christian faith exploring this, this will be something of an in-house discussion engaging with first century uh, Judaism and the claims of Christ in that context. Uh, Hopefully, you'll um, you'll be able to be engaged from there, but I just want to flag that. this is something more of a um, it welcomes more of an in-house conversation uh, to the church with that caveat let's engage the first the first point we're free from temple religion we read in verse 24 when they came to Capernaum the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said does your teacher not pay the tax does your teacher not pay the tax now It's important to understand that the the two drachma tax is what God had required in the book of Moses, in uh, Exodus 30 in particular, where every male in Israel, uh, when they come to the age of 20 or 20 or older at that time, uh, was to pay a tax, uh, a half shekel tax to the temple. Okay, and this was upon taking up military service. So this was to do with entering into the military, becoming uh, an adult in the life of Israel at 20 years of age. You pay your tax, a one-time tax, and this tax goes to the life of the temple, to the upkeep of the life of the temple. Okay, it has a one-time payment. And, and specifically in that context, it speaks of this tax being given as an atonement. It's interesting. It's um, the one place in the scriptures where, where you have silver, okay, money, money. Uh, functioning for each person's atonement their their atoning offering but in time what we see uh, is that this one-time payment develops or becomes somewhat transmuted you might say into an annual tax so we see this in places like second chronicles and nehemiah uh, where the people of israel establish a practice of funding the running and restoration of the temple it became a matter of national pride. Okay, we uh, see uh, historians like Josephus writing about this, that, that this annual tax that was taken up for the people of Israel, this is something that everybody in Israel uh, apparently w- was quite glad to make payment towards. Okay, this was their participation, their, their, their involvement, their engagement with, you know, especially uh, in Israel that was di- um, dispersed, many of them living far from the temple. This was their way of staying connected to the life of the temple. They'd offer up their annual tax in support of the religion of Yahweh in support of this faith that was centered at the temple and so perhaps in this context you can see why Peter may have been somewhat surprised by this question from the tax collectors does your teacher not pay the tax and Peter answers yes yes he does there seems to be an emphatic and short response from Peter yes he kind of of course he pays the tax And it goes on, and when he, Peter, came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. The sons are free. It's interesting. There's this implicit, unspoken suggestion from the tax collectors that maybe Jesus won't pay the tax, right? Jesus may not pay it. Maybe he's not interested. Will he pay? Does he not pay? And then there's this explicit, on the other hand, there's this explicit assertion from Peter that says, yes, he will pay. And then there's Jesus' response, which proves both of them wrong in a sense. And Jesus' response begins with this question. What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? In other words, we could ask the question this way. Does does the king tax his own children? Uh, When you think about kings and kingdoms, are the children of the king taxed? And the answer is, as, uh, as Peter knows, of course not. Of course not. The whole purpose of taxes in a kingdom is to give the king, his family, the the palace establishment, uh, the, the means to run the kingdom and to run it well. Kings' children don't pay taxes to their dad. Now it's important to point out that Jesus is applying this royal analogy to a particular context, the temple context. Okay, so his concern here, at least, is not directly with civil authorities but to say that just as sons of kings don't pay the taxes to the palace, so sons of priests, sons of the temple life, don't pay tax or tribute to the priest. And Jesus, of course, we find elsewhere in Matthew, and here as his own claim, uh, that Jesus himself is both the son of the king, the son of the king to whom this whole temple is constructed, Uh, he's the the son of God, uh, the, son of who, the, the God whose temple it is, and himself, the true and final priest of this temple. If anybody's exempt from paying this tax, it's Jesus. Okay, as the son of God, the son of Yahweh, to whom the temple belongs. If anybody's exempt, it's Jesus. And, as Jesus points out here, and all God's children with him. Okay. It's not just for the son, but it's for all God's children. It's a striking claim that the sons are free, free from paying tax and tribute to the temple. Now, what does this mean? What does this mean? It means at least this, that in Jesus, all of God's children are set free from any commitment to the temple establishment. Now, I realize that this may sound funny and foreign, to us, Uh, that that God's children are exempt from commitment to the temple establishment. But to begin to grasp the significance of this, you have to understand um, that the temple establishment was the center of everything. (laughs) Um, For Jewish life, throughout the life of the the people of God, from Tabernacle until the temple was built, the temple was the center of their religious life with Yahweh. This was it. For any kind of decentering of the temple, this would be an earth-shattering event. Okay, uh, any kind of um, destruction, uh, which gives you a clue as to s- some of the significance and the weight of Jesus' prophecies, uh, which we'll consider later, uh, of destruction of the temple. Right? If this temple is going to be destroyed, this is this is the end of the era. Uh, this is the end of an eon. Uh, this is this is um, this is tantamount to the stars falling from the sky. Okay, and then some of the apocalyptic language that we find in the New Testament. Okay? For, for, for the, the temple to no longer be of central importance in the life of Israel is, um, would be mind-blowing. People could not begin to even grasp this. Right? The temple uh, as, God, as Yahweh's own self-appointed place. Right? Um, it's where Yahweh's presence dwelt. It's where he heard the prayers from that place. I mean, we don't think about this anymore. Uh, but for much of the life of God's people, they prayed in a particular direction. Right? Their temples, their, their, their prayers, the way that they, the, 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 that they understood how their prayers were happening, it was towards Jerusalem. It was at the temple. This is where God's special presence dwelt. Yes, there's a sense in which God's presence was everywhere, and yet God had promised his presence in a particular way in this temple, in this place. This is where they prayed to the God of all the earth, right? in this temple. Uh, this is where all the ceremonies and feasts. this is where this is where they happened. They happened here. It's where atonement happened. It's where the priests lived. It's where the entire covenantal life of Israel was centered day after day with worship and sacrifices offered every morning, every day, every evening, okay, where washing and eating happens, and animals are slaughtered and blood is poured out and splattered and sprinkled. God's people were bound to the temple. Okay, this is where it happened. And we find, that this is what the taxes were for, okay? So just understanding the importance and the centrality of the temple and how taxes were used specifically and explicitly for support of this uh, this temple. And we see this in the book of Nehemiah very clearly, where we find the beginning of the annual temple tax. As I said before, uh, the tax began as a one-time tax, but by the time of Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the temple, they had instituted a new practice that they would offer a yearly, an annual tax. Okay, but here's how it's described in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 10. Uh, we find that the, the, Israel, uh, the people of Israel say here, we also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a tax for the service of the house of our God, for the bread set out on the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings of the, new, of, of the Sabbaths, new moon festivals and appointed feasts, for the holy offerings, for sin offerings to make atonement for Israel. And for all the duties of the house of our God. The taxes in the life of Israel were to keep the temple in operation. Okay, all the sacrifices, all the celebrations, all of the Sabbaths, all the rituals. And Jesus says here that the sons are free. Free from paying such tribute. No longer obliged to participate in this temple support. Okay, sure. The Jews may have been doing this a long time, all the way back to Nehemiah's day, and arguably before that. But now, for Jesus, the son, he's saying, there is no obligation, no obligation for him or for any of God's children. This is a radical statement. Okay? Uh, radical in the sense of uh, it's a root. It's, it's almost an, an uprooting that's happening here. Here, Jesus is claiming nothing less than his own status as the son of God with special status in relation to the father that he is the son he's the son of the father with a particular relationship to the father over the temple that makes him and all who are with him all the sons exempt it's a new status that's indicated for all of God's people the sons in Christ the children of God are set free As Paul puts it in his letter to the Galatians, just to to, to get at some of the newness of what's happening in Christ, he says this in Galatians 3. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. Through faith, he says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Okay, there's something new that's happening here in Christ, and it's giving us a new status. We're no longer slaves or to be treated as little children. Now we're grown up as heirs of the king. Okay, we're grown up, and we're given a new freedom in Christ. Okay, what we find here is that the relationship of God's people to the law which, of course, includes a particular relationship to the temple and to all its services and sacrifices, that their relationship to the law has decisively changed in Christ. In him, we are all sons of God. No longer under a guardian. We're free. We're free. And more specifically, we're free from any relation of subservience to the Old Testament temple system. And that's because, again, as the son of God, Jesus is also the temple. Jesus is, we might call, the temple in enfleshed. Okay. Uh, we find this claim in a place like John chapter 2, where we find that Jesus is the true temple. He is. His body is the temple. Everything that the temple was as the place of the center of God's presence among us in the world, everything that the temple was as the place of meeting with God, encountering the living God in our midst, all of this ultimately pointed forward to Christ, God in the flesh, this radical mystery of God coming down and tabernacling among us. The temple was always about God living with us, among us, God as the place of encounter between flesh and the divine. Jesus is the place of encounter. Jesus comes as the new temple, and in him we're free. We're free from the older establishment and the older way of relating to God through and by means of the temple. Even as First Peter says, like living stones, we're being built together into this temple. Okay? We too are participants in the building of this temple in Christ so that we have been set free from the old system. All has been fulfilled. Okay? God's temple presence is no longer located in that one place, but has been disseminated now through you and through me, through the whole church who are being built together as the place of God's dwelling in the earth. We're free from temple religion And now, secondly, there is a uh, maybe what we won't call a but, but then also, and also, we're free, also, second, we're dutiful for the sake of the kingdom. I mean, you could also say we're free for the sake of the kingdom, that there's a direction to our freedom. And what we find here is after proclaiming the freedom of sons, Jesus goes on in verse 27 saying, however, however, not to give offense to them. He tells Peter, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Now this miracle is um, striking, it's a startling miracle, uh, fairly unique uh, in terms of what happens here. Some have compared it to Jesus' first magic trick. You know, um, uh, go to the sea, and you'll find a fish with, with a coin in its mouth. It, it, it's uh, it's strange. It's odd uh, to think that Jesus had this power. I mean, it, it's it, again, it's striking to think that Jesus could either position that fish uh, in such a way, you know, or or knew that this fish had a coin in its mouth and tell Peter that he could go and cast a A hook into the water and that he knew that on the first catch Peter would get there at just the right time, put it down in just the right place and it would be that one fish that happens to have the coin in its mouth that would then come up. I mean it's something uh, to think about. Uh, How this happens in God's sovereign plan we don't know and yet that it happens is striking and it tells us something even just about God's control over even the minutia of what happens in his life, um, that God can extend a miracle to somebody casting a, a hook in the water and a fish coming up with with a, a coin in its mouth—it's an amazing thing—and it makes us wonder at God's control and the precision, the precision with which He rules the world. But what's perhaps just as startling is Jesus' attitude towards these tax collectors who come expecting Jesus, the high priest of heaven, to pay taxes to the temple. (laughs) Um, In many ways, they they don't know what they're asking. This is an incredibly bold request that Jesus, the true high priest, the son of God, the king, is now being asked to pay temple tribute and tax. And right after making it clear, if it wasn't already clear, that Jesus has no obligation whatsoever to pay any taxes to the temple, Jesus says instead to Peter, however, not to give offense to them, go. Not to give offense to them, go. Pay the temple tax, Peter. Pay it for you and for me, so as not to give offense. Now, it's worth pointing out at this point that Jesus is not a conflict-avoidant person. Okay. Uh, at least it's not obvious uh, Well, it isn't obvious in many cases that he's trying to avoid offending others. In fact, we're told in several places of Jesus offending people or people taking offense rather at Jesus in some cases calling down woes on his enemies he's not he's not avoidant of conflict by any means Uh, Which is perhaps why the Apostles Peter and Paul alike can apply Isaiah 8 to Jesus and call him a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Okay. Jesus is not against offending in principle. Okay. He's open to offending we find. So that opens up the question why does Jesus avoid offense and pay the tax here in this context? And I think we can note at least two reasons for this. First we can note the timing of it. Uh, that the temple will be destroyed The temple, as Jesus has prophesied and will continue to speak about through his ministry and as we continue to go through Matthew, the temple will be destroyed. It is coming to an end, and yet that time has not yet come. And it seems that Jesus is determined not to work against Israel's center of worship prematurely. He's interested in not causing offense prematurely. And the second related reason is... Of course love that Jesus demonstrates a willingness here to give up rights to give up his rights to give up his freedoms for the sake of others you can think about those who are collecting the tax to give up his rights so that he doesn't cause offense to them or to those that they would bring the tax to or to others might who might hear that Jesus has not given the tax he's concerned not just with living in the truth of his freedom and of his rights but how living in that freedom is going to have an impact on others and whether this will cause an offense, whether this will cause others to miss out on what God is in fact doing. What does this mean for us? Now, of course, we can fall on one or another side in this regard. We can be a people who are so concerned with not offending that we're willing to do whatever the religious establishment, or the government, or the culture around asks us to do. We pay the tax, you know, give them the money, because we don't want to appear to be mean, or short-sighted, or different, or difficult. We want peace, we're we're people of peace. Maybe we want people to like us, to accept us. And so we comply, and we don't want to offend. We don't want to cause offense. But this, hopefully it's obvious, here is not the way of love Uh, love on the other hand says difficult things love speaks the truth it confronts now my guess is that some of us here are so averse to saying and hearing difficult things that we've come to think it's almost unchristian to confront to say a difficult word to a friend to a brother or sister to a parent that it's unchristian to be angry or to disagree and one of the questions that we can consider here together is are we a people who are willing to offend in the first place are you willing to offend do you stand ready on the other hand to be offended in all the ways that you need to be now on the other side of this we can be so committed to being right to being in the right that we give little thought to whether we cause offense we don't pay the tax and we don't care what impact that has (laughs) you know we don't need to pay the tax what does that have to do with me right what's right is right and so we do it and we'll say it like it is and if it hurts someone well that's not my problem that's their problem and it's amazing to see jesus consistently concerned not to cause offense not to cause offense actually we're never told through the Gospels, that Jesus ever did anything to intention- intentionally offend. Instead, what we find is that people take offense. Okay? If anything, Jesus says, Blessed is the one who, does not, who is not offended by me. Jesus isn't out there to cause offense, and neither should we be. Okay? He's not out there to offend people. One way we could summarize Jesus' approach to offense is this. His approach is to remove every obstacle of unnecessary offense so that people might be offended by the truth of God, by the gospel. His job is to remove every possible offense. He's seeking to not create unnecessary offense at every turn, even with something as simple as paying a tax that he doesn't know. paying a tax that would in some ways rightly illustrate his authority over the tax. And instead, he's concerned... With offense with offending people so we might ask for ourselves for you Christian are you making someone angry in your workplace or in your family and chalking it up to being a good Christian a witness suffering for the gospel when in fact you've been the reason for offense not Jesus not the gospel you and if that's the case you need to repent. To repent of the ways that you caused offense without giving thought to the way that your life rubs up against others and can cause offense in unnecessary ways. Because Jesus shows us a better way. Those who are unwilling to offend are missing the mark of Jesus' calling. And likewise, those who are too willing to offend are missing the mark of Jesus' calling. And instead, here's what Jesus shows us. With Jesus, we see... The one son, the son of God, the son of the king, paying taxes he doesn't owe for him and for his friend, not because he needs to, but because he's more concerned with loving others than with pursuing his rights and freedoms. He's more concerned with loving you than with pursuing his rights and freedoms now if anyone's free from paying the temple tax of course it's christ the high priest high king of heaven he's free he's free and again what does he do with his freedom he loves he loves and he pays your debt and he pays mine and you're free Uh, you who are sons and daughters of the king through christ you are free and the question To you and i this morning is how are we going to use our freedom how do we use our freedom what are the customs of the church that may not be divinely mandated but that maybe you've been quick to dismiss to say that's not important i'm not bound to it it's not commanded by god i don't have to do it Uh, what are these things in your life that you can quickly dismiss without even giving any thought to the way that these things may cause offense within the life of God's people, the church. What are the things that you're quick to dismiss because you're not bound to it that may actually give unnecessary offense to those outside of the church that may cause people to wonder what kind of God you serve in the first place and whether he is a God of goodness and love and mercy and grace and forgiveness for sinners in need. There are all kinds of ways that we could think about this. Right, Um, uh, Small groups, In the life of the church are you bound to it does god command that people are part of a small group no but that's not the only question the question is not just about whether we're commanded but the question is what might give offense and how can we love our brother and sister okay how can we participate meaningfully in the life of the church in a way that will bless okay and help and support right do you have the right not to serve do you have the right maybe not to come on a particular sunday uh, for some reason that you deem worthy Well, that's not the only question. The question is, how are you loving and serving those around you? How are you participating in the life of God's people? And are you doing it so as not to cause offense to one another? Maybe something's been asked of you right now. You don't want to do it. You don't have to do it. You're free. But now, how will you use your freedom? That's the question. How will you use your freedom? Jesus uses his freedom to love. To not cause offense. And this is, of course, good news for you and for me. The same temple tax that paid for the constant supply of the bread of the presence, the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, holy offerings, sin offerings, Sabbath offerings, all to make atonement for Israel, this tax, Jesus pays. <laughs> The one who is the bread of heaven pays this tax that will support the bread for the temple. The one who is the final offering, the one who is our atonement, he's paying a tax that he obviously does not need to pay and still he pays it. Why? So as not to give an offense so that people can rightly hear the good news of truth which is in Christ, that Jesus Christ forgives sinners and he's come for you and for me to draw us near to God. He pays a debt he doesn't owe with a coin. And then he pays another debt, a far greater debt, with his own body and with his blood. We worship together the God who pays for us, not because he owes anything, but out of his abundant love and his abundant grace and his kindness. Thanks be to God. Would you join with me in a word of prayer? Our Father, we, we thank you for the radical mercy that you've treated us with, the radical grace, your kindness of giving what we don't deserve, of paying a debt in our place. And Father, we ask that as those who have received this radical payment in our place, that we would likewise become a people who freely give, and who use our freedoms so as not to cause offense, so as to love and do good and seek your kingdom first. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristChurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristChurchToronto.ca.